we're starting with Psalm 51, starting from verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." next passage comes from Luke chapter 18. We're reading 9 to 14. Luke 18, starting from verse 9. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it's good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time, uh, especially a warm welcome to you. It's great to see you guys. And if I haven't met you before, I'd love to, to say hello. Uh, my name is Ben. Uh, I'm the senior pastor of the church uh, and a pastor of the church along with Steve and Randy. Um, so, yeah, please come and say hello. Um, I'd love to meet you guys. Uh, we're currently going through a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, which we began a few years back, and we are picking up a few chapters at a time. Um, and so if you can keep uh, your Bibles open in Luke, uh, that would be great. Um, we're looking at a pretty short passage today, uh, and I will give some context so that we know where we are at uh, and what we're supposed to learn uh, as Jesus continues his journey towards Jerusalem. Uh, the outline of the sermon uh, is always inside the bulletin, so if you'd like to have an outline to either take notes or just to follow, uh, you can get that by um, grabbing a bulletin. If you didn't get one on the way in, our hosts can come and give you one. So if you put your hand up and wave, uh, they'll come and give you a bulletin uh, with an outline inside it. 
All right, so there's a couple here in the middle. Um, all right. <clears throat> As those bulletins come around, I'm going to pray for us uh, so that uh, we can ask God to really help us by His Spirit uh, to be able to hear His Word to us. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the book of Luke, for how Dr. Luke took great care to gather eyewitness accounts 2,000 years ago of the things that Jesus did and said, so that we may have confidence to know who Jesus is and what it means to respond to him. We truly pray today that you give us humble hearts to receive his words uh, from this very simple story. Uh, please help us to see clearly um, that the only way to stand rightly with you is to humble ourselves. So we pray you'll help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think uh, for most of us, we do find arrogance uh, and pride uh, quite off-putting, isn't it? It gets under our skin. So I'm going to try something a bit risky today. I'm going to get you guys to spend 30 seconds to turn to the person beside you to share about what irks you about people who are really arrogant and proud. And then afterwards, I'm going to get you to shout out, right? Two or three people to shout out the answers. I'm going to take a risk, right? Uh, this is not a very interactive crowd most of the time, but we'll take a risk. The first uh, service had three people call out, right? So that's the aim, three people. So 30 seconds, person beside you, what irks you? What really gets under your skin with people who are really arrogant and proud? All right? Go, have a chat. Okay, that's about 30 seconds. So let's hear some answers. What did you guys say? Well, you can share what the other person said. Let's start from this side, maybe. We had one from each section in the first service. So anyone from this section here want to give an answer? What really irks you about people who are arrogant and proud? Yes, Jordan. Okay, yeah. He's very annoyed that other people think they're better than him because he's actually better than them. Okay, yep, all right. Great example. Okay, in the middle section here. Yes, they never listen. Okay, good. All right, not listening and lacking self-awareness. Okay, good. All right, one more from this section. Oh, someone from that. Yes, Sharon. Condescending tone. Yes, so talk down to you, make you feel dumb. Yeah, all right. Okay, yeah, people who are arrogant and proud, really, they, they get to us, isn't it? I mean, we've heard a few of the comments here before. Uh, they're people that let off the, 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 the vibe that they know everything, right? that there's nothing to learn, uh, there's nothing to be, to be helped, and they make other people feel low, right? Uh, stupid, inferior. Now, it's not just us that kind of finds arrogant and pride kind of irksome. God actually hates it. He makes it very clear in his word that he hates it. Let me have a look at a couple of verses from the Bible. In Proverbs 8, this is what it says, right? The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Very strong words. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right? He hates pride and arrogance, and he will oppose those who are proud. Right, whether it's us or, or God, uh, arrogance and pride gets under our skin. 
So the question then is, right, what's so wrong, what's so bad about arrogance and pride? And our short passage today explores this topic of uh, arrogance and pride, a very particular form of arrogance and pride that we'll see in this parable. Now, just by way of a bit of context, because uh, we're all coming in from different places, so let's get a sense of where we're at. Right? We're in the section of Luke's Gospel where we've been really looking at the kingdom of God. Right? That's been the big theme that's been driving this section. It's kind of really been the theme from the beginning, really. Uh, Jesus' birth is the birth of the King, the Son of God coming into this world. And through the ministry of Jesus, it's been showing that he's not just any normal man, but he's someone who is the Son of God, and in fact, the King of God's kingdom. But particularly in this section, he, he makes it a real big point to say that the kingdom of God has come because the King is in your midst. And then later on, as he journeys towards Jerusalem, and this is the final section of his journey, he will actually go to suffer and die on a cross before he is raised in power as the king and ascends back into heaven. And then in the past chapter, he's been talking about the king's return, right? his second coming uh, back onto the world. And as we looked at last week's passage, we saw that it was about prayer. It was about uh, persisting in prayer for the justice that the king will bring when he returns. And the, the passage last week ended with a question, right? Will the son of man, will the king find faith on the earth? Will he find faithful believers? Uh, and this week, as we look into this parable, it seems to be a kind of continuation, isn't it? It seems to be the answer to who is the, the faithful one? Who is the one who will stand rightly with God? Who is the one who will enter into God's eternal kingdom when the king returns? And our passage explores the issue of pride and shows that it is a big, big problem that will prevent us from entering the kingdom. Right, it has tragic consequences. But it ends, really, I think, with an encouragement for us to respond uh, to God with humility because the consequence of humility is actually to be exalted, to have a place standing right with God in His kingdom. So let's get into the passage, right? Verse 9 is how it begins. Uh, he also taught this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so right from the beginning... Uh, we're given the target audience. Jesus is very clear that he has a very specific group of people in mind, people with a very specific trait. And the trait is that they trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and that they treated other people with contempt. Now, I think this is the kind of the classic dictionary uh, definition for self-righteousness. Right? Self-righteous people are those who look at themselves and then they think, you know what, I've really got nothing to worry about. I'm a good person, I do everything right, I've got great morals and values, I live well, and if there were God to be accountable to, I'll be fine, and certainly before other people, I'm just, you know, there's, there's no fault right, that really can be found with me, I'll, I'll, I'll be right. Uh, so they look at themselves, and they assess themselves to be fine, completely in the right, right? nothing to worry about. Uh, people like this also like to compare themselves to others, they look to others to compare Right? Nothing beats finding the faults in other people right, to level up your own sense of uh, superiority and righteousness. Self-righteous people, they like to criticize and condemn and show contempt because the more that they push other people down, the more they feel like they're raised up. Right? I'm not sure about you guys, but maybe you have this experience where you get a certain mark back and perhaps you've uh, done well and you've got 95% right, for your test. But it's one thing to feel happy about 95%, but it's another thing when you find out that the rest of the grade, the next highest score is 80%. Right? 
Now, that's when you start to feel even better about yourself, isn't it? Because like, it's not like everyone else got 96 to 99%, 100%. You are actually the top of the tree. Comparison tends to make you feel even more self-inflated if you can find people who are worse off than you. And so self-righteous people are those who Jesus is targeting. Those who look to themselves and think they're completely fine, they're righteous, they're good, and they look to others with contempt. As they squash people down, they feel even better about themselves. Now, I wonder, as we get into this parable, whether you're thinking of yourself, um, where you think you fit into what Jesus is saying. I wonder whether at this point in time you're thinking, oh, it sounds like Jesus is going to be talking about me. I think I am a proud, self-righteous person. He's going to be talking about me. I'm going to get ready. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, I wish such and such were here to hear this message. They really need to hear this. Perhaps it's the person sitting right beside you. You're kind of like, hmm, yeah, you know, look beside you. They really need to hear this, right? So yeah, you know, there's three there. I don't know who, who it is, right? Maybe Sam needs to hear this. Uh, Jordan too, most likely, right? I wonder, okay? So let's get into it. The parable begins in verse 10. So have a look, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Uh, and a Pharisee, sorry, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, if you were a first-century hearer reading this for the first time, the original audience, you know, a few years after uh, this all happened, when you hear the word Pharisee, straight away you would know who Jesus is talking about. Right? They were a very famous character, very uh, common character. Uh, uh, they were part of a, a, the most religious and pious group of people. If you were a Jew, you knew what a Pharisee was. It's just like if I told you a pastor, right? you kind of know what a pastor is. Um, so, a, a Pharisee was someone who was really the, the religious uh, um, elite of the time. They were the esteemed kind of establishment, the people that people looked up to. They would have been known as people who really knew God's law. They studied it, they memorized it, and they even invented extra laws, right, to supplement God's law because they wanted to show how law-abiding they were, and they were, right? They were really intent. Uh, going to the next level of obeying God's laws. So of all people in that time, when you hear Pharisee, they will be the ones that you'll be sure would be right with God. The same is true for the tax collector. Right, for us, we think tax collector, we think ATO, and we've got a few ATO workers in our con- congregation. But the tax collector back in those days was different, right? The moment you hear tax collector, your blood pressure will probably increase if you were a Jew because they were the traitors. There were the Jewish people who were employed by the Roman Empire to collect taxes for Rome, and these tax collectors would always skim an extra off the top. They would extort extra money. Next chapter, chapter 19, uh, that Darius is going to preach for us in two weeks' time, his final assignment before he finishes up as MTSer and goes back to Singapore, we'll be preaching on Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector, right? And uh, tax collectors, they, they were, would have been living the good life because they were earning an income from the Roman Empire, they were earning an extra income on the extortion, they would have had their family and friends around them, but if you were a Jew, a religious person, you would think these people are not going to be right with God. Right? They may be living the good life now, but they're not right with God. So we've got our two characters, right? Pharisee tax collector, straight away, if you're an original reader, you, you, you feel like you know where this story is going to go, but... The, 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 uh, the parable begins, right? Or continues. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So we are looking into our first prayer, right? The Pharisee and looking at his prayer. Now, what do you think of this prayer from this Pharisee? You hear the prayer. What do you think of it? It sounds kind of off, doesn't it? It sounds kind of off. It doesn't kind of sound like a prayer that you would pray to God. But let's first look at his posture, right? Firstly, he's just standing there by himself, right? If you contrast that with verse 13 later on, where the, the tax collector is standing far off, it would seem then that the Pharisee is standing near, near where? In the temple, near to where God's presence is, right? So if you know the temple in the Old Testament, that's where God put his presence. And the more you got to the middle of the temple, the Holy of Holies, uh, the closer you were to God, right? In a spiritual sense. And so you get this impression that this Pharisee is standing proud, right, in the inner courts near to God. And then he prays. He starts praying, God, I thank you. And you think, oh, it's going to be a Thanksgiving prayer, right? Or is it? Now, when you thank someone, what do you normally do? So if I thank Faith, what do I normally do? I would probably thank you, and I'll say what I am thankful for, right? I'll elaborate on what I'm thankful for. So I might say, uh, you know, I thank you, Faith, uh, for loving me and for putting out with all my injuries, right? And for putting out with having to do extra housework and driving me around everywhere. And if I were to reflect on maybe the kind of person that I've become because of Faith, I might thank Faith for you know, her model of love and service that encourages me to be a better man, right? That kind of thing. Right, I might do the whole Proverbs 31, praise my wife at the city gates thing, which I do now, right? So that's my line. That's what I do, right? That's how, that's how you give thanks to someone. But when you look at this guy's prayer, you think that a, a thanksgiving prayer to God should be about God. But for the Pharisee, this thanksgiving prayer to God is about him. He manages to, in two sentences, say five times, I. I, 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 right? It's all about him. He might be praying to God, but the subject of the prayer, the center of the prayer, is himself. And what does he say about himself? Well, let's have a look, right? I thank God that I am not, right, a terrible sinner. I am not like the sinner standing out there, right? That vile tax collector out there. I thank God that I'm not like all those kind of people. No, you know what? It's true. Very true. He's not uh, 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 um, someone who does all those things. Right? He's a Pharisee, a law-abiding Pharisee. But the issue is that he takes such great pride, doesn't he, in his moral achievements. He gives himself extra points for his moral superiority over other people, especially that tax collector out there, right, at the entrance of the temple or somewhere further back. But there's more. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, this is really actually going above and beyond. In the Old Testament law, there is only one time that you have to fast, and that is during the Day of Atonement, right? Yom Kippur. And you could do extra voluntary fasting if you wanted to as a Jew, but twice a week is really going above and beyond. Same thing with tithing, right? He says that I tithe all that I get. Now, tithe is literally giving a tenth. And that's what the, the Israelites were to do, to give a tenth of their income, what they produce from the field, what they saw in their businesses. But this guy is giving a tithe, a tenth, all that he gets, all that he buys. So it's not just what he earns, but also whatever he buys from the shops, right, he also gives a tenth of. Apparently, it's because um, he may have doubted whether the shop owner uh, actually gave their tithe, so he wanted to give an extra one in case the person missed out, right? It's gone above and beyond with his law abiding. He takes great pride in his religious achievements. 
and not just his achievements, his religious superiority going above and beyond. Now, let's think about this Pharisee's view of himself, right? What kind of self-view does this guy have? It's pretty clear, isn't it, that he is a self-righteous man. He is self-confident and self-assured. He is someone who thinks of himself as being without fault. He is morally, morally and religiously uh, superior, uh, successful and superior to other people. And he obviously sees that he has no need for God. He doesn't actually ask anything from God, does he? You know the definition of prayer is literally to ask God for something? Like Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving. Prayer literally means ask, right? But he doesn't ask. And so we see his perspective of God very clearly as well, isn't it? His view of God. What need of God does this Pharisee have? None. Absolutely no need for God because it's all about him. He is enough. He doesn't need anything from God. And he doesn't thank God for anything. Now let's turn our attention then to the second prayer, the tax collector. All right, have a look at verse 13 now. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now straight away, without having to explain anything really, you can tell this is a completely different kind of prayer to the Pharisee, isn't it? His posture to start with is entirely different. Right? He's standing far off. He can't even bring his eyes to look up right, towards the heavens. He's looking down and, he, and he's beating his chest, his breast. There's this a sense of real unworthiness to be able to approach God or come anywhere near God. There is a, a real sense of grief and sorrow at, at his sinfulness. Right? If he were Cantonese speaking, he'd be like, Yang kong, tama, you know, that kind of uh, you know, expression, uh, Asian expression of grief and on their knees crying. Uh, Westerners are all very reserved, so they might not do this kind of thing. But, you know, as Asians, we know what it's like to show a bit of drama when it comes to these things. But this person is for real, expressing his grief and sorrow, his posture, before he even prays, already speaks loudly about what his view of himself is and what his view of God is. And when he finally does open his mouth to pray, we see that the man is the total opposite of the self-righteous Pharisee. He cries out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? He addresses God, and it really is about God when he prays. Because God is the one he cries to. God is the one who has to act. God is the one who has to show him mercy. The only thing that he says about himself is that he is a sinner. That's the only thing that he says about himself. Now think about it for a while, right? If you were maybe standing next to this guy, you might say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself, you know? You're not all that bad. Right? Maybe, he, and most likely, this tech collector would have been a pretty good family man. Right? He probably had a wife uh, he would have loved in his own imperfect way, but he would have loved anyway. He would have, might have children that he would care for. He might have been generous to his friends. He might even have been religious. Not, not all sinful people are irreligious and, and unspiritual. He might even have gone to the temple. Well, he, got, he didn't go to the temple, right? So he is religious. And if he were to, say, compare himself to the people around him, yes, he might have been an extortionist and a tax collector, but at least he wasn't a pedophile or a serial killer or whatever was the more viler sinners around his time. He could have pointed at them, but he doesn't do any of that. Can you see? The only thing that he says about himself is that he is a sinner. He doesn't try to self-justify. He doesn't compare himself to other people. 
all he sees before God is that he's a sinner. And so all he asks from God is for mercy. Now, this request for mercy is actually a, a quite a technical a Greek word that's different from the more general, have mercy on me. Right? This mercy word comes from the temple, especially from the Day of Atonement. Uh, it is literally, uh, give me an atoning sacrifice, which was what the uh, Day of Atonement was there to give. Right? Uh, atonement for sin uh, from the provision of God, uh, a sacrifice that would take away the penalty of sin and turn aside the wrath of God against sin. So this tax collector, certainly he's a faithful Jew who knew that he needed atoning for his sins to be paid for. <clears throat> and so what we have in this parable, very simple parable, is two prayers, two prayers of total contrast. And Jesus, just in case we don't get it, makes the point really clear for us. Have a look, verse 14. All right, the pronouncement, the point. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I think Jesus makes it very, very clear, isn't it? That one of the two went home justified, right with God, and the other did not. One justified, one not. And we clearly can see that it's the tax collector who is the one who is justified. And why? Jesus makes it clear because he, he humbled himself right, under God. He recognized his lowly state before God as a sinner, and he humbly came to God for mercy. And mercy is what he receives. Now, once again, as we look at the context of this passage, uh, the mercy of God, the atoning sacrifice, will be about to be fulfilled right, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and dies on the cross as the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for sin. Right? In a sense, this, this tax collector will receive the mercy of God through Jesus. It is how all of us receive the mercy of God. It is through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. Sinners get right with God through the mercy given to us in Jesus. Everyone who humbles themselves in this way will be exalted which is just a technical word for saying we'll be lifted up, right? We'll be blessed, right? To, to stand with God, right? And to stand with the king when he returns and be brought into the eternal kingdom. But the Pharisee, he is the opposite, isn't he? He is the one who exalts himself before God. He trusted in his own righteousness. He, he, he showed contempt comparing himself with the people who are more sinful than him around him. He saw no need for God or His mercy. And the conclusion of that is that He will not be exalted in the end. He will be forcibly humbled by God. He will have no place in the kingdom. Now, I wonder whether you notice the, the vital difference between these two characters, right? The vital difference between these two characters. If you had to really kind of laser point the issue here, what would you say it is? Can I suggest to you that the, the issue, the vital point and the difference here is that they have a vastly different vertical perspective, right? A vastly different vertical perspective. That is, they don't think about what God thinks of them. All right, they, sorry. Um, what uh, they think of God and what God thought of him, them, was the huge problem here, right? The, there's a missing vertical perspective that he did not consider what God thought of him and he didn't think rightly of God. 
You see, the Pharisee might have really studied the Word of God, the law of God, and even memorized it and obeyed it. He might even have prayed to God, but was he really ever looking up at God? Was he ever really seeing God for who God is in his utter holiness and righteousness uh, and perfection? Because if the Pharisee really did have a proper vertical perspective, there is no way that he could ever imagine that he could be self-righteous, that there is no sin that needed fixing. There is no way that he would not have seen his need for mercy that only God can give. And rather than looking out properly, and because he didn't regard God properly, he just looked inside, and he looked sideways. He looked inside and he thought, oh, sweet, all fine, I'm good. He looked sideways and thought, all these crappy people around me, I'm fine. Right? Missing the vertical, getting the horizontal, the inward, the sideways, all wrong. Our dear tax collector, on the other hand, he clearly had a, a good, a proper, right vertical perspective, didn't he? The, when he saw God, he saw himself rightly as a sinner because he knew that God was utterly holy and righteous and perfect. And so the only thing that mattered to him was that he was a sinner in need of mercy. And so he humbled himself and God exalts him. There will be a place for him in the blessed eternal kingdom when the king returns. Now let's draw out some implications for us then, right? We understood the story. Now let's think about it in terms of how this applies to us. Now what is at the heart of this kind of self-righteousness that Jesus is calling out on? Uh, in this parable. Now, there are lots of kinds of pride and arrogance, but the kind of pride and arrogance that we see in this passage that Jesus is attacking is the self-righteousness or, in a way, taking away the vertical perspective and just seeing ourselves in line of the horizontal perspective. Right? It's to only look horizontally without looking vertically. Now, we live in a culture where we are at pains to, to teach other people uh, and to convince ourselves that we are born basically as good people. Right? This is what our world wants us to, to know, that we are born good. And if you were to only look inside yourself, you would find all the acceptance that you ever need. You will find true happiness when you look within. Uh, people in this world convince themselves that if their life is going well and they are achieving their goals and they are enjoying life and they are successful, it must mean that they are doing life right and that everything is completely okay. There is nothing to worry about. And there are, of course, many people in our world who like to look sideways. They look at the world around and they see there are a lot of terrible, godless people out there, right? We are much more civilized and sophisticated. Um, and even within our own homes and, and, and classrooms and workplaces, we, we do get the sense that we are pretty good people. We are better than most. I don't gossip. I don't lie too much. Right? I'm, not too, I'm, I'm usually a nice person. I give to charity. I even go to church. And we convince ourselves, looking inwardly and sidewards, that we are fine, that we are confident of a right standing. If there were a God, he wouldn't have a problem with me because I'm so good. I'm fine. You know, there are lots of people in our world who don't know or don't care about God, right? Either they don't believe in him or they treat him as if he doesn't exist. They don't know or they don't care that God is someone who is utterly holy and, and righteous and perfect. Um, and certainly they don't see that they're in a sinner in need of mercy. You see, you don't have to be as morally and religiously high-achieving as the Pharisee. I mean, their standards are, are, are crazy high. You don't have to be as high standards as them. You don't have to be so blatantly arrogant 
as to go to God and thank God for how good you are, right? All you need to do is set your own standards for what it means to be right with God. Set your own standards for what it means to be a good and righteous person. All you have to do is just keep comparing yourself with other people to feel good about yourself. All you have to do is just to keep ignoring God and say that what he thinks of me doesn't matter. This is the kind of self-righteousness that Jesus is calling out against. But the good news is that you don't have to remain that way. You don't have to be stuck in, in, in ignoring God <clears throat> and in fooling yourself that you're fine before God. And the offer here is that anyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Anyone who recognizes that they are in need of mercy from God because you're a sinner will be forgiven. It's a humbling thing, isn't it? It's a hard thing to humble ourselves uh, and, and listen to the opinion of others. But this isn't others, this is God. We're humbling ourselves to God's opinion of us. And to humble ourselves before God ends up being the best thing that we can ever do. Because as we humble ourselves, we will be exalted. We will receive from Him the mercy that we so desperately need. Now for many of us, I think we would say that we have uh, recognized our sin and we have called out to God for mercy, right? Many of us here are Christians. However, I think for us, there is still a danger, isn't there, for us to fall into uh, self-righteousness the longer we are as Christians. So let me you know, spend a few minutes exploring for the Christians the danger signs of how self-righteousness might be seeping back in into our lives. You know, as we grow as Christians, and that's a great thing, perhaps you start to feel more secure, uh, more confident in your relationship, your standing with God, because of your growth in your godliness and in your increasing service. You start to maybe boast a little bit about how you've managed to overcome certain sins. We've all done real change this year, and you've really changed. And you're like, right? Maybe, in a metaphor. Or you start patting yourself in the back, you know, oh, I went to this uh, training course on point and purpose. Right, Darius taught me so well. I can look at the passage now, and I can draw out the point and purpose and application. I can handle the Bible so well now, right? Pat yourself on the back. Uh, or perhaps, you know, you're starting to give more time, more money, right, to Christian ministry and the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that growing your faith and service is a bad thing. No, it's a great thing. I'm not saying that receiving encouragement and praise from other people is a bad thing. But be very careful. Because subtly, self-righteousness can rear its ugly head where we start to, to give more weight to our inward appraisal and approval, we start to give more weight to the approval and appraisal of the people around us. And we start to not say deny God's grace and mercy, but we start to not wholly and entirely boast in God and God alone. We start to maybe take some glory, some confidence for ourselves in ourselves. We start to shine a light more on us and what we are achieving, and we take away the light, right, that should be shown the brightest and all of it to the glory of God. The vertical starts to lose its shine. Now, another warning sign for us is the increasing the sort of uh, feelings of contempt and, and, uh, and judgmentalism against other people. Right, remember the Pharisees' problem is not only he did have an inward-looking problem, he had an outward-looking problem. And as Christians, sometimes we start off you know, really taking on board Jesus' instructions to love and to care for people, especially those who are struggling and sinning. And maybe at one point in time, whenever we saw people who, who were stuffing up in their lives, we had a lot of care and a lot of concern for them. And we really prayed for them and yearned for their growth. 
But after some time, you kind of get tired of it, and then you get frustrated, and then you actually start to feel content. You're like, come on, you know, by now you should have changed, right? I, I'm gonna, you know, you start being critical and you start to condemn. And you're not really wanting to rebuke them out of love for them to change. You just want to feel superior to them. And you want them to see that they're just stuffing up. And you start to shift, isn't it? To putting other people down and maybe even thinking, I'm glad I'm not like them. Thank God. Big warning sign when we start to have those kind of attitudes. Another big warning sign, I think, is to do with uh, humility before God as a sinner. Now, this is a tricky one, right? Before God in Christ... We are saints. We are holy. But it's also true that we, are, we still struggle with sin as Christians, which means that we need to have this ongoing humility for us to keep seeing the sin in our lives and to keep confessing it. What is your confessions prayers like these days? Uh, do you do it? Is it irregular? Is it cursory? Right, just touch and go? Is it deep or is it shallow? Is it thoughtful and reflective? Do you actually grieve your sins when you confess it? Do you maybe physically or, or, or metaphorically beat your chest? Is there godly grief and sorrow? Because if there isn't, then there's something that going on there, isn't it, with, with the humility that we have before God as sinners. Or perhaps we become quite resistant right, to the correction and the rebuke of others. We become very defensive. Now, anyone points out anything wrong about us, and, you know, we're defensive. That's another bad sign there, isn't it? That humility is going out the window. That we don't see our need for God's mercy and for God to keep helping and changing us. You know, a lack of humble recognition in our failings is a great warning sign, clear warning sign to us of a growing self-righteousness. Now, I don't want to end there, though. I mean, we've ended on a negative. Uh, we've just talked about a bit of negative stuff. But I want to end on a positive, because when you think about the context once again, uh, this parable was spoken, yes, to speak against those who are self-righteous, but I think it's trying to give confidence, as the whole of Luke is, to those who are believers, who are remaining and striving after humility. And for people like them, like us, hopefully, Jesus wants us to be confident, not in ourselves, but confident always and ever only in God, boast in the gospel. Because in the gospel, God has done everything that will exalt us, that will give us the mercy that we need. He wants us to feel the comfort of the promise that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We ought to be comforted in our humility to know that God accepts us. We stand right with him right now. The tax collector went home justified before God, Jesus says. Right now, those of us who are humble, who have humbled ourselves before God, can know the assurance and comfort of being right with God right now. And when Jesus returns, when the King returns, we will stand with Him and we will be led into the eternal kingdom of glory. So let us remain humble before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank you that it speaks to us with such clarity of what it means to stand right before you, what it means to be those who are faithful and those who will be received into the kingdom of the Son when he returns. We pray so much that you'll help us to um, have the right vertical perspective. For if we do not see you clearly, we are unable to see ourselves clearly. Help us to not be like the Pharisee who only look inwardly and sidewardly 
and, and concluded that uh, we are fine, that we are confident in how good we are and how much we've achieved in ourselves. Uh, help us to look up properly at you. Help us to see uh, and really understand that you are God who has made us, that we are accountable to, that you are utterly holy and righteous and perfect, and that we cannot stand before you because we are indeed sinful. And so knowing that, we, we pray that you'll help us see your gracious and merciful provision of an atoning sacrifice through Jesus, that we would humble ourselves and ask for your mercy and receive it as we receive Christ's sacrifice for us. Uh, prevent us, we pray, from looking at ourselves and others with contempt. Um, help us instead to, to keep being humble before you. Uh, even as we grow as believers, uh, we give thanks to you for our growth. Uh, even as we feel secure in our salvation, help us to only ever boast in what you have done for us through Jesus. Uh, if we are struggling with pride and self-righteousness, we pray, Father, your spirit will be at work to be transforming us right now for the, tragic, the, the, the consequences of being proud before you is tragic. Please save us from that. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.